As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. She wanted to take their son with her, but Thomas Keir wouldn't let her. Uh, I suppose having their son with him was a guarantee for him that Jean would come back. When Peter Seymour, then a detective, attended a house fire in Sydney's West in 1991, he instantly knew he'd been to the address before. 
he'd crossed paths with the homeowner, Thomas Andrew Keir, when he was following up on concerns about the whereabouts of Keir's first wife, Jean, whom he claimed had left him and their young son for another man. Inside the burnt shell of the house was the body of Keir's second wife, Rosalina. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims, and what happens next. We talked to Peter about this disturbing case and the dogged police investigation, which is detailed in the book he co-wrote with Jason K. Foster, Seven Bones. How did you first cross paths with Thomas Andrew Kerr? The first dealing I had with him was through a missing persons report when his first wife, Jean, disappeared uh, back in the late 80s, around 89. Uh, the missing person report came across my desk and uh, I had to go out and speak to uh, Thomas Keir and any other family members to see if there was any further information that could lead to uh, the whereabouts of Gene. I went out there a number of times to his house and he was never home and I was later to find out that he was actually overseas courting Rosalina, who was to become his second wife. But I actually first met him one night about 10 o'clock where we caught him at home and we were asking him questions uh, at his front door. And whilst talking to him, a couple of young blokes pulled up in a car behind our detective's car and then ended up rolling forward and running into the back of our car. And to cut a long story short, we got into an altercation with those two uh, young blokes before we arrested them. And Keir actually witnessed the whole thing and, funny enough, was a valuable witness to us in uh, that particular matter. And so when the first time was that you met him, you were actually asking him about his first wife, Jean, is that correct? That's correct, to see what information, if he had any further information, because at that stage, Jean was reported as a missing person. And reported as a missing person by Kia, saying that she'd run off with another man. Well, the strange thing is he didn't want to report her missing at first. It was her, Jean's family that ended up doing it. And Keir, when he was spoken to, that's what he, he alleged, that she had an affair and had run off with someone else. And this becomes very pertinent later on because it's actually his second wife and her very suspicious death where you come in contact again with him. Tell us about that. Yes, well, that was around three years later. I was supposed to start work at three o'clock at Mount Druitt Detective's office and uh, just after one o'clock I got called in early. There was a, a body found in a house that had been burnt. When they gave me the address, started ringing uh, alarm bells with me that I knew it will be from some time earlier. Uh, and when I got there, I spoke to an offsider who was at the scene and uh, I thought at that time when I was told it was Keir's wife that it was his first wife, Jean that she must have come home and in speaking to uh, the other detectives, he was the main suspect at that time because he was the last person seen leaving the house before it went up in flames and straight away I thought, well, we've got a massive problem here because if it's not his first wife, if he's remarried and it's his second wife that's dead and he's in the frame for that, then what's happened to his first wife? So that was a concern I had and we kicked off the investigation again into his uh, first wife's disappearance. So when you arrived at the scene of the house that had that there'd been a fire there, what did you find? What had happened to Rosa, Rosalina? She, uh, her body was found on the bed in the main bedroom with 
uh, a bed lamp cord wrapped around the neck and her hands were actually up and clenched around the cord uh, as if she was trying to free herself from it. Her body was totally burnt. She, you could not recognise her. She was totally black from the fire. And, yeah, Keir was the last one seen by all the neighbours because they're on a corner house, seen going from the house and within 10 minutes of him leaving, there was flames and smoke billowing from under the eaves. The house was well alight and no one else was seen entering or leaving the house. There was, they had a German Shepherd dog that would bark at everything uh, and everyone that walked past, it never made a noise. There were no screams, no noises from Rosalina as if she'd found someone uh, she didn't know breaking into the house, nothing. So um, he was obviously the person we needed to speak to uh, about her death. And he was charged with Rosalina's murder, wasn't he? Ultimately, yes, he was. There were no other suspects at all for it. Uh, He was the only one. And it actually went to trial, didn't it? It went to trial. The jury took a long time deliberating on it. And I look, without trying to assume what was going on in the jury room, the the only possible thing I can think is that they believe that within that 10 minutes of him leaving, even though no one else was seen coming and going from the house and the neighbours, neighbour to the left, he was out the front. He saw Keir come and go and saw no one else go in. Neighbours around the other side were waiting for the real estate. They didn't see anyone else come and go. People across the road, they didn't see anyone else. But the jury obviously believes someone in that 10-minute period was able to break into the house, murder Rosalina on the bed, walk outside into the detached garage, grab accelerant, go back in, splash it around, take the accelerant back to the garage outside and then set the place on fire and get out without being seen. It's quite unbelievable, really. So he was found not guilty by a jury and his defence was obviously that someone else had killed Rosalina. That's correct. And so while this is happening, obviously that would have been, well, the result that you you and your team were not expecting. While you're investigating Rosalina's murder, you're also looking again at the disappearance of Jean, Keir's first wife. That's correct, yes. You said that when you went to the scene um, of Rosalina's death, you, you remembered that you'd been here before and that you thought it was Jean, his first wife, who died, and then you discovered it was his second wife. So obviously there's alarm bells for you immediately. So are you working both these cases at the same time? How does the investigation work? Well, Detective Sergeant McLines was in charge of the investigation into Rosalina's death. I was assisting him in that, but Mick and he and the other detectives, uh, the team involved, they while they were concentrating on that and whilst I was providing assistance in that, I branched off a bit and started concentrating on uh, Jean's disappearance, going back to the family, finding out who her friends were, tracking them down and bearing in mind we're three or four years down the track by this stage, locating school friends and then trying to build a case of how Jean was prior to marrying Tom. And we soon were able to get a profile on the fact that after her marriage, there was a gradual decline in this person who was once a a bubbly, vivacious, beautiful young lady to someone who became withdrawn lost weight, 
didn't go out and see her friends um, and just withdrew basically from everyone. Tell us about what you discovered about the relationship. Jean was very young when she met Thomas and he really, you would almost say aggressively pursued her, wouldn't you? That's right. He he hounded her. He did whatever he could to try and win her over. Uh, he would buy gifts for her parents and he would always be hanging around because he, he worked with Jean's mum for a period of time and uh, that's how he got to meet Jean. But you're quite right. He aggressively pursued her and until basically he, he wore her down and she went out with him. And she was 18 when she married him and she was also pregnant with their first child. Was the relationship supported by Jean's family? Jean's mum... Uh, through her religion, supported the decision Jean made to marry Tom. Jean's father, Clifford, had reservations. He just didn't like Tom at all. He didn't trust him. It was, I suppose, father's instinct. He just didn't like him at all. So he didn't support it, but he had to go along with it, basically. And what were some of the behaviours that you discovered were happening from Kia in that relationship before Jean disappeared? It was certainly sounded like it was an abusive relationship and he was very controlling. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head with two words, abusive and controlling. And the control factor was incredible. He was a very possessive, a very jealous man. And we highlighted in the in the book one time where he came home and Jean was in the bath with their baby son. He was only just a little baby and she had him cradled on her chest and he uh, lost it with her and said that you, he shouldn't be on your chest like that. And like, this is just a newborn baby, a little baby. It's the most natural thing. And yet he just lost the plot. That was not something she was allowed to do. If she wore clothes that were a bit too revealing, again, he would take control of that situation. He would alter her clothes. She wasn't allowed to go out unless he knew where she was. So, yeah, he was just very, very controlling. And we do know from statements from a lot of her friends, Jean started displaying uh, evidence of bruises uh, to her body as time went on, which to us signified that she was being beaten. She wouldn't go out with her friends and just withdrew into herself. And what was happening in the months before she disappeared or, as Kia said, she left for another man? That was his story, but he didn't reveal that till later. What was the escalation in the final months that you could learn of? Well, they they had uh, a number of arguments, but it just wore Jean down to the point where she left home one day, ended up in Sydney, at, in a park in Sydney, and got obviously caught up in the situation she was in and was uh, very emotional. And that's when this gentleman came past and saw how upset she was and befriended her. And that's the person that she had basically a one-night stand with. Um, and he ultimately ended up being the last person to see her alive when he dropped her home one evening. That came about because uh, Jean said that she needed uh, some time away from Thomas, so she went down to a caravan park at Culborough with her sister and her sister's boyfriend. She wanted to take their son with her, but Thomas Keir wouldn't let her. Uh, I suppose having their son with him was a guarantee for him that Jean would come back I suppose he would have thought that if Jean took their son with her, uh, he may not see her again. She'd take off. So he held 
their son with him basically to force her to come back home. But instead of her staying the week down there, he arrived down there a couple of days earlier than expected, had an argument with her, chased her around the car, grabbed her violently and threw her in the car and drove her back home. And this was watched by her sister and her sister's boyfriend at the time. And it it struck me during the trials that, and I felt so sorry for Jean's sister's boyfriend uh, when he was asked the question during the trial about that scene where he didn't do anything, didn't intervene to stop Keir from manhandling Jean and taking her back with him. And he said uh, that's something he's going to regret for the rest of his life because if he had intervened, she would more than likely be alive today. When did it become clear that she had disappeared? How long was it until the family were able to get some answers from him and obviously the police started to help? Well, they no one's ever got the answers from him. To this day, he refuses to accept any responsibility for Jean's disappearance. He's still saying he didn't do it and uh, he refused to report her missing until the family did and then he had no choice and he had to go along with it. But it was not until Rosalina's body was found and the obvious suspicions that arose from that that we really delved deeply into Jean's disappearance. It's interesting how he came to meet Rosalina because it was actually Jean's mother who introduced Keir to Rosalina. What was Christine's reasoning for introducing Rosalina to Kia? Well, I think it's like any parent. Uh, I've got three daughters and I'd probably think the same. You're always hoping that she is still alive. And that's what Christine was hoping, that, that Jean had actually left because Christine was aware of the problems with the marriage. Jean had spoken to her a number of times and, again, through Christine's religious beliefs, you're supposed to try and work it out with your husband. And Christine had to live with with that as well for the rest of her life. But she always hoped that Jean was out there somewhere and didn't want to believe that anything had happened to her. And I don't think at that stage she had any idea that Tom had anything to do with it other than Jean may may have run away because of the breakdown in their marriage. So she did tell me that she introduced Tom to uh, Rosalina, hoping that if Jean somehow found out that Tom was going out with someone else, that that might flush her out, so to speak. She might, you know, make contact with someone in the family, but obviously that didn't happen. Yeah, I understand that thinking because obviously um, Jean's son was still with Keir and Christine probably hoped that she'd come back because maybe she didn't want someone else raising her son or was worried about him or, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking of things, but I I can understand why a a desperate mother would try anything to try and get their daughter back. Of course, and it it was something that was made very clear to to us as we investigated this matter from Jean's family and her friends that her son was her world. There is no way in the world that Jean would leave and run off with someone else and leave her son. He was probably the most important thing that she had in her life. So that was the other thing that was of concern to us as investigators, that why would a woman 
absolutely adored a son. He was, as I said, the most important thing to her. Why would she up and leave with someone else and just leave him with a person who was violent and controlling? And so Rosalina comes, she moves to Sydney from the Philippines and she and Keir marry in 1991. What was their relationship like? How? What did you learn about that? Well, again, um, it was a very controlling relationship from, from Keir's perspective. Keir's a young lady who he married her over there in the Philippines, brought her back to Australia. They lived with Keir's parents initially because Keir had a lady and her son renting his house at Tregear. And it wasn't until this woman complained of a foul odour coming from somewhere around the house and she told him that, uh, you know, in a statement to police, she told us that her dog came out from under the house and had clumps of hair in its mouth. She straight away terminated their lease and went into the house and did it up. We have evidence from an associate of his who called in unexpectedly one day and he's inside the house in the hallway with the floorboards up and was digging underneath the house. And when this gentleman questioned him as to what he was doing, he said, oh, there's something uh, smelling under here. It smells dead. I've got to get rid of it. Uh, the guy then left. But again, that's fairly crucial evidence that came forward as part of the investigation. And once he'd finished doing what he was doing at the house, which I believe he was digging Jean's body back up, once he'd done that and disposed of the body, he moved into the house with Rosalina. But getting back to your question, yeah, it was a very controlling relationship. He's a young girl who's in a foreign country, very little family out here. And she, like Jean, was not allowed to go out unless Keir was with her. We understand she wanted to get a driver's licence and he wouldn't let her do that. She found herself obviously in the same situation that Jean did, uh, being totally dominated and controlled. And they weren't married too long before she was killed, were they? No, that's correct. Uh, They'd married in the Philippines, come over to Australia. It was only a year or two after that that her body was found in 1991. When the verdict came back that... Keir was not guilty of Rosalina's murder. What were your feelings when you found that out and did it really make you want to double down on the efforts to find Jean? Uh, I was astonished. And, again, look, we have a jury system in Australia and I can't get into their heads. I don't know what they were discussing as part of their deliberation, but it was certainly not a verdict that, in my wildest dreams, I expected. Uh, I I totally expected it to go the other way, but you are right. Having that verdict come down and see him walk for a murder that we, in our minds, firmly believed he committed, just made us more determined to ensure that we ticked all the boxes and got every piece of available evidence we could uh, in Gene's matter. After the break... Peter tells us about the misstep Keir made while in jail that confirmed what they believed happened to Jean. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So tell us about the evidence that you secured that helped finally convict Keir of Jean's murder because he was found not guilty of Rosalina's death, but Rosalina's death ultimately led to the conviction of Keir for Jean's murder. Tell us about the evidence you found that really locked that conviction in. We were building a very strong circumstantial case, getting all the statements from Jean's family and her her friends, her school friends, and, and as I said earlier, building a profile of a, an abusive relationship and the gradual decline in Jean's uh, appearance, including, as I said, bruises on her body. What happened is whilst Keir was trying to get bail in Rosalina's matter, he spent some time in jail trying to raise that bail, and it's uh, a bit of karma, really. Keir, whilst he was still married to Jean, had some friends over and they were watching a TV crime show, and Keir apparently said that cops are stupid and the only way they can solve matters is if people are silly enough to open their mouths. And ultimately, that's what happened with, with him because whilst he was in jail awaiting... Uh, or trying to get bail, he opened up to an inmate about what he'd done and how he'd murdered his first wife and buried her under the house. That inmate then told another prisoner who confronted Keir and those two prison inmates ultimately provided statements to us and gave evidence in the trials and Basically, it was their evidence that uh, was crucial in the in the matter because they, what happened, the second prison inmate that confronted Keir, he had a Supreme Court bail application happening. Uh, he was, uh, he'd been charged with a sexual assault matter. So he then wanted to do a deal. Uh, he'd only speak to, to me, decided to drive down to Long Bay Jail and interview him. And straight off, he said to me, okay, I want to do a deal. I want bail. I said to him, well, until you tell me what you know, I, I'm not going to do anything for you. Either you tell me what you know, and if it proves to be right, then we'll see what we can do for you. And I got up to walk out, and uh, he called me back. 
and he just told me things that no one could have known. They weren't known to the media, weren't known to other people. It was only known to him, to us investigating police, and yet he knew a couple of these things. So I got a statement in my notebook from him. He didn't want to sign it at the time. But in my mind, his evidence was crucial because he could have only got the information that he told me from Keir himself. So, yeah, these two prison inmates through Keir opening up to them, they were crucial because that led us back to Keir's house. We got another search warrant and we found the seven bones alongside one of the brick piers underneath the house, which is exactly where this prison inmate told us we'd find them. So the information that you say only you and Keir would have known that he told the prisoner, what was that? Uh, It's just information about uh, the affair. We hadn't made all that public at that stage. Gene's last movements, those sorts of things. When I spoke to him and he started telling me about these things, straight away I knew that Keir must have told him. Keir was the only person that could have told him. And then when he said Keir buried her body under the house, upright, everything started falling into place because as part of Rosalina's investigation, we were speaking to neighbours and things. They used to tell us how Keir would bury things in the backyard. Uh, They thought he was a bit weird. He'd bury car engines, car panels, gates, lumps of concrete, and we found all that when we had a brought a excavator in to dig up around the yard looking for Jean's body. The only thing we didn't find was the neighbours said they saw him bury was a 44-gallon drum. So it's always been my belief that after the tenant raised her concerns about a foul smell, Keir wouldn't have been able to take the risk of moving back into the house with Rosalina until he got rid of the body and so there'd be you know, no smell, no, no nothing to cause concerns. So I believe he's dug the body back up, put it in the 44-gallon drum that he would have also had to dug up and discarded the body somewhere in the drum. The problem for him is that after a few years, as he's pulled the, the body back up, seven small bones have become detached and fallen back in the hole, which he didn't realise had happened. The first bone we found ended up being a finger bone. I was there at the time when the guys were, when the excavation was going on and one of the uh, uniform police was digging around one of the outside brick piers and found this bone and handed it to one of the other detectives who approached me and said, well, look at the guys I just found. Looks like a chicken bone. And I said, look, I don't know the difference between a chicken bone and a human bone, so... Uh, we'll bag it, get it down to the forensic pathologist and see what they say. And we continued on with the dig. Uh, it was the next day when I was in the uh, superintendent's office at Mount Druitt where word came through that that bone had been positively identified as a, a bone, a human finger. So the the other bones we found was the left patella kneecap, a couple of other finger bones, a bone from the right big toe, and they're all the seven bones that we found were all just small bones, and they they ultimately we had some uh, DNA testing done in Sydney. The tests weren't conclusive because DNA testing back then was in its infancy out here. I ended up taking them down to Melbourne to the forensic laboratories down there. They were able to get a result, but then couldn't duplicate it. And they told me when I went back down to pick the bones up that if we wanted the 
the most advanced DNA testing done to take them to uh, America. Uh, some years later, that's what happened. And two scientists over there carrying out different types of DNA testing, uh, both of them resulted in positive identification. Is it right that there were several trials for Kia for Gene's murder? Uh, there were three trials. The reason being in the first trial, the judge had made an error, which was easy enough to make, when he gave the jury instructions on how to interpret the DNA evidence. It's very complicated. And to be honest, it's been so long now, I couldn't even try and explain it to you myself. But yeah, he, he made an error in uh, addressing the jury on how to interpret that evidence. And because of that, the defence lodged an appeal in the Court of Criminal Appeal. They ordered a retrial. So unfortunately, we had to put all the family, all the witnesses through the hardship and the heartache of another trial. And again, he was found guilty by a jury. But unfortunately, uh, as things turn out, the defence barrister after the trial, went across the road and came across a few of the jurors who were having a drink. Uh, they'd been locked away uh, for many weeks uh, listening to the evidence and they were having a drink after the, the verdict. And he struck up a conversation with a couple of them and one of them told him that he had uh, looked here up during the trial and saw that he was acquitted of Rosalina's murder some years earlier. So the barrister went straight back to the Court of Criminal Appeal uh, on the basis that we had a, a biased jury. The Court of Criminal Appeal granted another trial on that basis, but the third trial was before a judge alone, no jury, and uh, we got a guilty verdict. What was Keir's reaction when you presented him with the fact that you had found the bones in the backyard? Uh, look, he, he's just deadpan. He, he shows no emotion whatsoever. Even... In the trials, uh, when the guilty verdicts came in, there was just absolutely no emotion from the man. His expression never changed. So you could present him with all the evidence in the world and he would just shake his head and deny it uh, without any show of emotion whatsoever. And the, the broader issue with this case, and it's devastating and fascinating and very timely now that we talk about family violence and violence against women so much more. What have you learnt over the years and how has your understanding and experience of family violence, violence against women evolved in your years as a police officer, especially with, with doing this case? Look, I, I was subjected to uh, scenes of domestic violence from a 19-year-old in the police. From early years in general duties at Blacktown, we would go to scenes of domestic violence and it was something that was totally foreign to me because that's certainly not the family environment I was brought up in. My father was uh, a true gentleman. Uh, he would open the door for mum to, for her to get in the car and that's how I was brought up and my two brothers were brought up. So to be put uh, in a situation of attending family domestic violence matters was something very foreign to me. But over the years, um, seeing more and more of it, you learn that domestic violence, you typically think of it as physical injuries being inflicted generally from a man to a woman, uh, but that's not always the case. It can be the other way, uh, or from man to man or woman to woman, uh, as the case may be. But there's a lot more to it, and it's only in recent years through the promotion of 
domestic violence, uh, organisations like White Ribbon and so forth, promoting the fact that it's not to be tolerated, that you you learn that it's not just physical violence, It's it can be non-physical, you know, controlling someone's finances, controlling their movements, who they're allowed to see, who they're allowed to talk to, um, putting them down uh, and belittling them and making them feel like they're, they're worthless. That can be as damaging as physical violence and in some cases can be worse. Yeah, we saw that with Keir because he really – he controlled Jean so much that, as you said, she was diminished as a person. She was just a young, vibrant woman and she just became a shell of herself. Exactly right. And, and yes, there, were, there was evidence of uh, violence towards her, as I've indicated earlier, but I think in her case what was probably worse for her uh, was the controlling emotional, mental stress that, was placed on her that, as you said, she became a shell of herself. And so you co-wrote the book Seven Bones with Jason K. Foster and it's been a few years since it came out. What's it been like for you in the years since this happened? Do you think about this case often? Oh, there's always something that makes me think about it. Uh, uh, we, we often hear about the term closure uh, and funny enough, I don't like that term, to be quite honest, because to families of, of victims, I don't see it as closure. Yes, we, we do our best to find answers for them, to find out what happened. But uh, to use the term closure, I, it's never closed. Uh, you're often thinking about you know, these people. You're thinking about, in my case, you think of the families. Christine, unfortunately, passed away at the end of last year. I still think of about her and there's always something that will happen in your life that makes you think back to these cases and and the things you've been involved in so to me it's it's never really closed Jean's family will never stop thinking or loving her in their hearts so I, I think it's it's just us trying to get the answers for them that they're seeking. Were Rosalina's family able to come out to Australia what happened when you had to tell them the horrific news that she had died? There were uh, some family members out here for the trial and it was very difficult trying to explain to them what had happened and for them to take that back with them to the rest of the family over in the Philippines. I guess it's hard enough for, the, for us as police when we know the evidence to come to terms with it, let alone family members who all along were expecting justice and unfortunately they didn't get it in that case. Yeah, and no, I, I said before telling them she died really that you had to tell them that she was murdered and it was a horrific way for her life to end. So, yeah, I can't imagine how horrible that would have been. It is. It is it's, when the decision came in, it was just totally demoralising and deflating and that's the initial effect that it had on us, police, and then the difficulty of looking the family members that were there in the eye and, and trying to explain what we believe was the unexplainable was very difficult. Um, they're looking to us to solve the matter and, and get justice, and it just didn't happen in that case, and there was nothing more we could do. Thomas Keir is actually out of jail now. He's done his sentence. He's on parole, but he did appear in the news earlier this year. Were you aware of that? 
I wasn't initially. I was made aware of it and I looked up the matter. So I am aware of, of what it was about and what happened. He basically served all his sentence. He got sentenced to 22 years with 16 years non-parole, but he his 22-year sentence would have been up in February. He was let out on parole in October, so it was only a matter of four months that he got out early. Uh, I'm aware he, he would each year make a parole application and was um, always rejected. But then, yeah, he was out in October and it hasn't taken him long to uh, get into a bit of strife again. That strife was he had had some contact with a woman and under his reporting obligations, he needs to let parole officers and authorities know if he's had contact with women within a certain time frame. And, and he didn't do that. It went to a hearing about whether he should have electronic monitoring. But it certainly raises issues about when a, a man is released who has committed violent crime against a woman, murdered her, how are you going to monitor that other women are going to be safe? And that's the ultimate question. I think back when you when you raised that point, I think back to the defence psychiatrist that was called on his sentencing. It's something that stuck with me where he said words to the effect of Keir, in his view, wouldn't present a danger to the general population but would present a danger to any woman he formed a relationship with. And basically, I suppose, if, if that woman started to uh, go against his wishes... I uh, left the police force in 2004. I suppose 24 years of policing. I was in charge of another murder after the Keir murder investigation. And uh, uh, I had six years as a police prosecutor at the Westmead Coroner's Court. So there's basically not too many ways a person can die that I haven't seen. Uh, and some of the scenes I've been to, it all started to get a bit too much. And I was ultimately diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and discharged medically unfit in 2004. It's very difficult. I liken PTSD as like a thief in the night. It sort of sneaks up on you. And look, anything can trigger off these feelings in your mind. I know for myself, there is no way I could watch the news or any TV show that involved trauma to young children or kids. And having three daughters of my own, I've got to walk away. And look, I still have nightmares. I wake up virtually every night around three o'clock in the morning. It's like a switch goes off in your head and you wake up. Sometimes I go back to sleep, sometimes I don't. The nightmares have diminished quite a bit since I've been discharged from the police and not in that line of work anymore, but I still have them. And they're, they're frighteningly real. And... Yeah, you, you have a really bad one and then you, you don't want to go to, to sleep for the next couple of nights and then you're just totally fatigued. But it, it has got better and, to be honest, the, the thing that's got me through really is basically the love and support of my family. They've, they've been crucial in helping me deal with it. Thanks to our guest, Peter Seymour. There's details on his book, Seven Bones, in the show notes. If there's anything in this podcast that has affected you, please phone 1800RESPECT, the National Sexual Assault, Domestic and Family Violence Counselling Service, or go to the website 1800RESPECT.com.au. 
There's also Lifeline on 131114. For assistance and information on post-traumatic stress disorder, there's several good websites, including beyondblue.org.au, blackdoginstitute.org.au, and sane.org.au. Details of these organisations are also in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.